Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists, and that's with Helen Scales. Hello, Helen. Hello. And also with me, Chris Smith. Now, in this week's show, how a species of snake has learned how to lure fish straight into its jaws, and Helen will be snapping away at that story very shortly. Also, a new way to combat cancer, because researchers have turned off tumours in mice by giving them a dose of a small piece of genetic material. And why fish and humans are more alike, it turns out, than we first thought, at least when it comes to learning, because scientists have discovered that they can actually learn off each other, unlike lots of humans. We'll be finding out how they do it very shortly, Helen. Thanks, Chris. Also, this week we're exploring the future of farming. How will the planet sustain the 9 billion people that are predicted to be on Earth by the year 2050? We'll be hearing how tinkering with plant genes could help them grow in places where they otherwise wouldn't, places like very salty soils, and how to keep pests at bay without the addition of nasty chemical sprays. But is that a good idea? We'll be finding out. We'll also be hearing, even if you're not 100% green, why going just a little bit organic can be beneficial to traditional agriculture and how a new invention could turn a desert into an oasis. The seawater greenhouse uses the sun's energy to turn seawater into fresh water to grow crops and we'll be speaking to the man who invented it. Thank you Helen and for the experimentally minded among you out there if you don't like the colour of the flowers that someone sent you, then Ben and Dave could have just a solution. This is an experiment that shows us something about the way that plants take up water, isn't it? That's right. All you do is take some white flowers, cut the stems off so they're nice and fresh, and then put them in some coloured water. That's all on the way. In the meantime, if you've got a question for us, you can email the email address of the programme, chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. You're listening to The Naked Scientists, and up first, there's an old wives' tale that snakes can hypnotise their prey. I think if you've seen the Jungle Book cartoon, the Disney version, you've seen something like that. But Don't new- cobras do something like that as well, when they sort of sway their head back and forth? Isn't that supposed to be...? Maybe, possibly. But anyway, this new study has revealed, I think, something that's even more amazing, and definitely real, this definitely happens, that's going on in the snake world. Tentacled snakes have evolved an astonishing way of tricking small fish into swimming right into their mouths. Kenneth Catania from the Vanderbilt University in Tennessee in the US has uncovered how these snakes confuse the fish into swimming towards them instead of away from them. And the reaction of the fish is so predictable that the snake aims at the spot, not where the fish is and then track it across where where it's moving to, which is what predators normally do, but it actually anticipates and aims at the spot where the fish will arrive at when it's turned towards the snake. Can you just tell us, what is a tentacled snake and how is that different from a normal snake? These are extraordinary creatures. They really are unique. They look more or less like any other snake except on their snouts. They've got these two little tentacles that wriggle around. None, nothing else looks like that. They're a type of mud snake and they live in freshwater and brackish water across Southeast Asia. And, uh, and when they are hunting, they take up this very characteristic J shape in their bodies. They can hook their heads around um, and wait for fish to come along. I'm just looking at the paper. It's beautiful pictures in this paper. And, and it is that the, the, the snake's body actually makes the head of it look sort of like like the end of a fish hook. Yeah, or, or a hockey stick or something. It hooks right around, exactly. So how does that help? So what that, what's going on, basically, is when a fish comes up to it, because these are fish, they, they'll be mostly catching their food in the water, fish and sometimes amphibians, and um, they'll wait for the fish to come along. And uh, then they will basically just strike out and catch the fish. But what's going on with the fish is something also that's really interesting. It's, some, um, it's actually an automatic reflex that the fish has um, to escape 
predation. So fish have um, ears, like humans do, and instead of hearing through air, they hear through water, and they've got one ear on either side of the body. And what happens is that if a pressure wave, a sound, comes towards them, it'll hit one ear before the other. Oh, so they turn. They think it's coming from that direction, so they turn the opposite yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely, and it's actually a very, very, very quick response because the snakes can react within 15 to 20 milliseconds, but the fish can move even faster than that. And so it's called, in fact, it's called a C-start reaction. And um, the ear actually sends um, a signal almost directly to the muscles on one side of the body. So the fish flips round in a C-shape and swims off in the other direction, away from the, sat no the source of the noise. And so presumably, can, I, can I guess where you're going to go with this and say the snake therefore sends the sound using the other end of its body, its tail or something, so the sound comes from the other direction. The fish thinks, oops, it's coming from over there, turns the opposite way and goes straight in the snake's mouth. Exactly. It's, it's absolutely extraordinary. That little way down the, uh, the snake, um, it, it kind of it flexes its muscles and makes what um, this guy, um, Catania, actually measured with a hydrophone. He popped a hydrophone into the, into the tank he was studying these guys in and picked up a sound that was enough, he thinks, to trigger this sea-start response, this swimming-away response in the fish, but in the wrong direction. And he looked at... It's extraordinary. He looked at four different snakes in these uh, trials in aquariums. Um, so 120 times he looked at these um, snakes um, attacking fish and 78% of the time they swam towards the snake, not away. So it's just really clever. This really is a good way of, of confusing their prey into swimming towards them. It's amazing to think how something has evolved to outstep something else that evolved a defensive mechanism. So it's, it's so sort of clever. evolved to take advantage of someone else's this kind of this, this way of doing it. It's really extraordinary. And the next thing he wants to do, actually, is to figure out if this predictive ability... Because the really clever thing is, as well, that the, fish, the snakes are going for where the fish are going to end up, not where they actually are right now. Um, it's probably going so quickly, you wouldn't even be able to see these things. It's going so fast. You actually... He had to use very high-speed cameras to look at this. Um, but he wants to do this uh, with baby snakes, just after they've hatched, to see if it's actually learnt, uh, learnt behaviour, which we'll be hearing about in a minute with the sticklebacks, um, or whether it's hardwired, um, and see what these little baby snakes do the first time they try and catch their dinner. Fantastic. Thank you, Helen. Snappy story. Now, also this week, scientists have potentially discovered a new way to combat cancer and turn off tumours by giving cells a dose of a very small piece of genetic material. This is a paper in the journal Cell. It's by Jeremy, Jerry Mendel and his colleagues at Ohio State University. Um, basically, what they're doing is building on the premise that was discovered in recent years that one of the ways in which genes can be controlled in cells is not just by proteins called transcription factors turning genes on and off, but also the presence of small regulatory pieces of genetic material called microRNAs. And these can turn genes on, and in some cases they can also turn them off. And one thing that scientists have realised in recent years is that one of the reasons they turn genes off is to stop them growing, because genes... All cells have plumbed into them genes which make the cells grow very vigorously, for instance, during embryonic development, and also allow cells to move around, because when an embryo is developing, cells which start in one bit of the body sometimes have to migrate over distances to go to another part of the body to take up their final position. But once they get there, you don't want them to move anymore, so you want to be able to lock the cells in position and stop them growing. So that's where these microRNAs come in. They turn on and they switch off the genes that make those cells move and grow like that. So... What about if you lose those RNAs? Could that mean the cells become cancerous? Well, that's what scientists have begun to discover, that when cells stop making these RNAs, perhaps because the mechanism that makes them in a cell goes wrong, then you've got suddenly the handbrake taken off on this cellular car. It can sort of roll along when it shouldn't. And so what this group of researchers did was to say, well, if we take some tumours and we put some of these RNAs back into them that they seem to have lost the ability to make, will this turn off cancer? So how do you put them in, into the cells? How are they actually getting them inside in where they want them to be? Sure, very very important point. In this instance, they were using experimental mice that are programmed to develop uh, liver cancers. And what they did was to make viruses called adeno-associated viruses. These are just basically the shell of the virus, and they replaced the genetic material of the virus with new copies of this RNA that was missing in the cells. And they then injected these viruses into a blood vessel that was supplying the mice liver and what this meant is that the viruses then infected all of the liver cells carrying in these therapeutic small RNA genes. And the result was actually quite striking. When they looked at the numbers, they had a number of animals that were treated with a therapeutic gene like this and then a second group of animals that were just controls. Amongst the control group, all of them got very nasty liver cancers in a very short space of time. Six out of eight of them were, uh, had what's called fulminant liver failure. But amongst the therapeutic group, eight out of ten of the animals 
had no traces of cancer. So it looked like that you were adding this gene to the liver and it, what it was doing was turning off the cancerous process and also causing cells that were going to become cancer, cancerous not only to stop growing but also to kill themselves, which argues this could work in us. And liver cancer is a really big killer, isn't it? It's a terrible disease. Is this going to be a, a non-toxic way of treating, uh, tr- treating this disease? Because by the sounds of it, if this is something that we have in our cells anyway, naturally, then if we're just putting it back, then that's not going to cause any nasty side effects, is it? It's a very important point, and, and that's exactly what they say. They do address that in their paper, and they say, look... Um, most cells in the body have got this gene turned on already and it's the loss of the gene that makes a cell harmful. Therefore, putting the gene into cells that have already got it doesn't change anything, doesn't change the status quo. Putting it into cells that have lost it and therefore could turn cancerous is actually going to rescue those cells and prevent them becoming cancerous. So therefore, it won't do any harm if you do have it. It will definitely help if you don't. So I guess it's early dates though, isn't it? But hopefully we can see this perhaps in the future as being a new way of looking at how to treat cancers and, and get rid of these terrible diseases. Absolutely right. And at the moment, the only way we can tackle cancers is with cytotoxic cell-killing drugs that have all kinds of nasty side effects. Actually combating cancer at the genetic level, because cancer is a genetic disease, is a very promising direction to take. And I think this is very exciting work. It's very early days. It's in experimental animals, obviously. But it doesn't normally take that long, and we're talking a decade rather than hundreds of years, to translate this to, to clinical trials. So I hope we'll start seeing some kind of repercussions of this kind of work coming out in the, in the, in the ward soon. Let's hope so. Well, I'm going to move back into the animal world now with another rather extraordinary discovery this week. Well, it's not really a discovery. We know about giant sperm already. These are found in various animals in the animal kingdom. But we've now found fossil giant sperm in ancient crustaceans. And it's revealed just how long these enormous male sex cells have been around for. And the fact that the oceans 100 million years ago were full of males hotly competing with each other over who gets the best mates. Still hamster today, doesn't it? <laughs> Indeed it does. Your nightclubs in Cambridge. Indeed like it does. Maybe not through giant sperm in, in nightclubs. But anyway, this was a paper Thank God. <laughs> in the journal Science, which I've got right here, by Renate Matzke-Karatz from the Ludwig Maximilians University in Germany. And they, that was a team of researchers who studied the internal organs of some 100 million year old ostracods. Now they are a relative of crabs and lobsters, a type of crustacean. And in fact they look a bit like a mussel, which is a type of mollusk, which is a very different type of animal, but they have a similar... Um, shell that they live inside with two two bivalves, two shells that stick together and they're sometimes called seed shrimp and that's really obvious if you take a look at one I've got the paper here in front of me and it does look a bit like a bean um, only these are really tiny, they're about a millimetre um, long and they're thought to be about 65,000 ostracods alive at the moment and they live in marine and fresh water. 65,000 or 65,000 species? Oh species, sorry, 65,000 species Pretty rare if... <laughs> <laughs> no, there's, there's a lot few more than that um, but they, they live in marine and fresh water and some of the modern day male ostracods have extraordinarily big sperm. I'm talking ex- just the biggest sperm you can imagine. How big, Chris, do you think it could possibly be compared to the size of these little creatures? Well, come on, put me out of my misery. So how big are these creatures again? They're so mi- about a millimetre. The creatures are a millimetre and the sperm are how big? Can be up to 10 millimetres. So 10 times, times the size of... Their they're producing sperm yeah, 10 times the size, the size of their of body? Their, the length of their body, all wrapped up and squished inside them. Isn't that Why? extraordinary? It's a really good question. And what they found now is that this also happened in these fossil uh, fossil ostracods 100 million years ago, the same thing of huge sperm. Why have huge sperm? Well, it's all got to do basically with male competing for females. If there's uh, lots of males around competing with each other to get a mate, then for some species, to ensure that you pass on your genes to the next generation, it can make sense for males to make really enormous sperm because that can increase the chance that their sperm will be the ones that fertilise the eggs inside the female and uh, sort of help stop other males from being the successful ones. And uh, it's not only in these ostracods we see it in something a bit more familiar. Um, fruit fly, Drosophila, they um, have sperm that's six millimetres long and they're only a couple of millimetres long themselves. So it's really quite bizarre. And I think it's probably best if we don't make an analogy for human beings. But, yes, don't do that. But this study does shed light onto the evolution of this peculiar male trait and uh, showed that, you know, for a long time now, size really has mattered. Yep, I know that. Thank you, Helen. Now, also this week, fish are into social networking, it seems. What I mean by that is that they can learn from each other. There's a wonderful paper in the Journal Behavioural Ecology. This has been done by Durham University researcher Jeremy Kendall. And what he did was to go down to his local river, catch about 300 sticklebacks. And if you're not acquainted with a stickleback, uh, the non-scientific term for a stickleback would be tiddler. So these are little river fish. And what he did was to divide these into a number of groups and put them into tanks in his lab where he had feeders set up. And one of the feeders 
was very, very generous. It would give lots of food to the fish. The other feeder was like my school dinner lady and also the canteen at the hospital where I work, uh, where it was very stingy with its portions. And so they wanted to see how quickly would the fish learn that they should eat in one place and not the other because they'll get fed better. So they did that. Once the fish had apparently learned this, and you can test them quite easily, they then confined the fish to a sort of fish viewing gallery in the tank. So the fish could see the whole tank but not go and feed and not interact with anyone else in the tank. They then put a second group of fish in the tank and repeated the experiment, but with a twist. They swapped round the two feeders. So the stingy one became the generous feeder. The generous feeder became the stingy one. And the question they were asking is, because this first group of fish could only see the second group of fish eating... If they were only learning by their own experience, when they were later released into the tank, if they had not learned by watching the other fish, they would swim straight to the feeder they'd learned always gave them the best portions and then discover their mistake. On the other hand, if they could learn by watching what others got up to, then as soon as you let them go, they should be able to swim to the right feeder. So they're looking at... At fish feeding, they're not looking, they can't see the food directly. What they're looking at is basically how much food is being eaten, how much they're actually nibbling. Exactly. How much the other fish, the demonstrators as they call them, are actually getting fed. And that's exactly what they found. We took all the demonstrating fish out first. So it was just left alone in the tank without any food at either feeder. And the question was, which way do you want to swim? Where do you want to go? And only under the conditions where it observed others feeding at a particularly high rate, did it go towards that feeder. And this is indicative of what we called a hill climbing strategy. Now that simply means that it's a strategy whereby you're going to increase your fitness, that is your chance of survival or reproductive success, by making an appropriate choice. It would only copy the preference of the other fish when it would pay to do so. And that's the really clever thing, because what the team did was to vary how generous the generous feeder was, and the fish would only copy the other fish if they saw that they were being fed better than they would have done under the old arrangement. So it was a very clever learning strategy on the part of the fish. And the same thing gives us clues, according to Jeremy Kendall, as to where we get our own learning strategies from. To be able to make selective use of social information when it pays to use it is something that may well underlie a lot of the reason why we've been able to accumulate culture over time, for example, developing technology by making smart decisions about when to learn from others. Well, another issue that's been hitting the headlines lately is that of the plight of our beloved bees. So we sent Mira Synthalingham down to London to the Wellcome Trust to find out what all the buzz is about. This week saw the unveiling of a taxi dressed up as a bee driving around the streets of London. Now, why is a taxi dressed like a bee, you ask? Well, this bee cab has been custom-made to celebrate Pestival, a festival that celebrates insect life, which is taking place on London's South Bank this coming September. And the theme for this year's festival is the collapse of bee colonies around the world. Bridget Nichols is the festival director. The key theme of this year's festival is bees, and we're creating the Queen Elizabeth Hall. We're turning into the Queen Bee Hall, and it's going to be called the Bee Social. And it's all about people coming together from different disciplines to discuss colony collapse and creating a critical mass. I just think that it's very important to get urban people thinking about saving the bees because they've got balconies, they can plant flowers for their urban bees. I think that we we are in danger of losing our bees and obviously we should do something about it while we can. Festival director and organiser Bridget Nichols. This plight of bees is a theme well chosen as bee populations have been decreasing at an alarming rate in recent years with bumblebees in the UK estimated to have fallen by 60% since 1970 and in some parts of the country honeybees by up to 80%. The repercussions of this disease are enormous, with the bees' pollination services having a commercial and economic value of around £20 to £50 billion worldwide. As bees don't just make honey, but they pollinate more than 90 of the flowering crops we rely on for our food sources. Wellcome Trust scientist Pat Goodwin explained why these services are so valuable. Fruits won't ripen, we won't get flower seeds without having pollination which actually fertilises the seeds so that they can grow into fruits, apples, pears, and all the flowers that we love in our gardens. They depend on pollinators as well. So no more apples, pears, or pretty flowers. Pat told me more about why this decrease is thought to be happening. Nobody really knows the answer. 
There are lots of theories. One thing is climate change, which is the warmer winters are affecting bee hibernation, for example, and upsetting their whole sort of life cycle. There's new pathogens coming up, the varroa mite, but it's not just the varroa mite, it carries viruses, so it lives on the bees, but it also transmits viruses between bees. Then there's lots of issues around modern agriculture, whereby you have vast fields which are then harvested, so there's nothing left for bees to pollinate. And, of course, they use the nectar and then take it to their hives and make it into honey. Another thing, I think, is probably in breeding. Bees have been bred to be non-aggressive and to produce lots of honey, and that is probably meaning that they're losing some genes which are important for their vitality. Now, a buzzword at the moment, thought to be causing some of the big falls in population numbers, is colony collapse disorder, where entire colonies are dying or disappearing for no known reason. This has happened on a larger scale in the US, but is increasingly happening worldwide. Beekeeper Steve Benbow has over 350 commercial hives nationwide, so I asked how this plight in bee numbers has affected his trade, and if his hives have experienced colony collapse. We don't really see that directly at the moment, but we do see uh, trouble from, say, varroa, a parasitic mite that latches onto the, to the bees. And this brings in lots of other diseases, such as cloudy wing virus. It causes a deformity in the, in the wings, the diseases we have to keep on top of and try and sort of learn new techniques. Things like icing sugar is a very good way of managing uh, sort of varroa at the moment that's being trialled where the bees are what we call a hygienic behaviour where they're cleaning themselves and hopefully knocking off the mites and cleaning and grooming each another to help uh, reduce this uh, terrible infestation that can take place really. So beekeepers like Steve Benbow are finding new ways to get around these problems. But is getting around these diseases in honeybees enough? What about the other species being affected? Well, April 2009 saw the launch of the Insect Pollinators Initiative, where £10 million, donated by many UK funders, including the Wellcome Trust and Natural Environment Research Council, will be used to try and understand the decrease in bee populations. Pat Goodwin told me how the initiative plans on doing this. What we hope to do is to bring together researchers in different fields to look at all these complex interactions and if we can understand what is underlying the issues facing bees we might be able to do something about stopping it. So whilst researchers are trying to find out the causes and a cure to this problem why not find out a bit more about it or even learn how to keep bees as a hobby at this year's festival taking place from the 4th to the 6th of September at the Southbank Centre in London. That was Naked Scientist Vera Synthillingham reporting on the dramatic fall in numbers of our bee populations. One wonders whether the EastEnders cast could get uh, involved as well with their Queen Vic, which they could get into the Queen Bee Vic, possibly. <laughs> it's the Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Helen Scales. We're talking this week about the science of GM crops, the future of farming, and also on the way, the seawater greenhouse, a unique way to use the sun's energy to desalinate seawater and then grow some crops. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. You can also listen to The Naked Scientists on Second Life, of course, and uh, that's at 6pm till 7pm UK time. You can find us in the Silands if you go to the Silands in Second Life and you'll see all the assembled avatars lounging around listening to the Naked Scientists at our mansion, like Slack Gigamon, who says, if you could evolve yourself, what would you do? Would you add the genetic code for night vision, perhaps stronger bones or bigger muscles? Helen, what would you add? Oh, it has to be amphibious. I have to be able to swim underwater and live on land So you want some gills? I want some gills, but also lungs too, please. I don't want to be stuck in the sea. But embryologically, you do have some gills. You just didn't bother using them. Can I I get those back again, please? It'd be quite nice. I'd like wings, actually. I think wings would be... Yeah. Wings would be the thing for me. Dream on, dream on. Anyway, it's now time for Kitchen Science. Let's find out what Ben and Dave have been up to this week. Kitchen Science is in full bloom this week as Dave has turned up with a bunch of flowers. Dave, what are we doing with these? We thought we'd go for a really old school experiment. I found this out when I was about six reading books when I was little. And um, for this, all you need is some flowers, ideally some white ones. And as I discovered after I did these ones, ideally with nice fleshy petals, things like tulips or lilies and some ink or some food colouring. OK, now I think I remember this one as well. This is an experiment that shows us something about the way that plants take up water, isn't it? 
That's right. All you do is take some white flowers, cut the stems off so they're nice and fresh, and then put them in some coloured water. A nice strong solution of ink or food colour. Although something I have found out recently is don't use erasable ink because of certainly Cambridge water seems to erase erasable ink. <laughs> and so you end up destroying your own effect. That's pretty much what I achieved, yes. <laughs> OK, now, I think most people at home have probably worked out what happens. But once you get your plant and place the stem into this coloured water, what should we expect to see? Well, I've got one over here which I've made earlier in the best traditions of broadcasting. Now, this is a bunch of chrysanthemums, and they were originally white, but now they kind of look like they've been put through the wash with something brightly coloured. Half of these have gone a bit blue and streaky, and the other half are clearly now pink. Yep, I actually added an extra twist to this. What I did was I took the stem and then very carefully split it up the middle, put one half of the stem in some red ink and one half of the stem in some blue ink. And as you can see, half of the flowers have got blobs of blue on them, and the other half have got blobs of red. Oh, well, so this is why half of them are blue and half of them are pink, because the stem was actually split in half. So how do flowers take up water? Pretty much all land plants have a structure in them called xylem. This is made of lots and lots of really, really thin tubes running all the way from their roots up to their leaves or their flowers or the fruits or whatever. And inside this tube is a liquid, basically water, with a few minerals and whatever dissolved in it. And this tube runs all the way up to the leaves. And outside the tube in the leaves, you have, tend to have more sugars and a more concentrated solution. So water, by the process of osmosis, moves from the xylem into the tissues around there. Um, this produces a gap, reduces the pressure at the top of the tube, which sucks more water all the way up from the roots. But this must work in trees as well, and some of them are really tall. How does it maintain the enormous column of water it must need to get water all the way up to the top? Well, it's basically because the tube is so narrow. For example, if we come over here to the sink, this works by a process called capillary action. Now, you can see this actually just using a couple of fingers. Um, if I put one finger in the water... This doesn't seem much of an experiment. One finger in the water. OK, you're in up to your first joint of your finger. What should I be looking for? If you look round my finger, the water is sort of being attracted to my finger and the surface goes up around the edge of my finger. Uh, yes, this is like when you put things into a measuring jug or something. It goes up at the very edge. It's called a meniscus, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. It's because the water is attracted to my finger, fundamentally. OK, so what now? Well, now if I take another finger, and if you watch very carefully... So you get another meniscus on the second finger. If I get them very, very close together, the meniscus actually rises as the two fingers get very, very close together. Yes, it looks as if the water's kind of being pushed up between your fingers, as if both meniscus are adding together and increasing their height just because they're that close to each other. That's right, and if you get it really, really close together, like fractions of a millimetre in xylem, then the water will be stable up to many tens of metres. So how can this effect, which raised water by a couple of millimetres, perhaps, between your fingers, how can that account for a, a tens of metres tall tree? With my fingers, when the water wetted my fingers, that released a small amount of energy, so it could keep on wetting up to a certain height. But it had to lift quite a lot of water to do that, to increase the surface of the water. So that takes quite a lot of energy, so it doesn't get very high. But in a very, very, very thin tube, it can wet a large area of this tube, which releases quite a lot of energy. You're only lifting a very, very small amount of water, so you can get up incredibly high because the tube is so small. So that's what happens with water. You have this osmosis in the leaves, pulls water out of the xylem, therefore more water gets pulled up. But we're actually seeing that ink is getting pulled up here as well. How's the ink getting into the petals? Well, normally on the roots you'd have a filter system, so the plant only lets the things it wants to into the system. However, because we've chopped the stem open, you've broken that filter, you've just opened the xylem straight to whatever you dunk them in. If you dunk them in ink, then ink will get sucked up as well as water. So the ink gets sucked all the way to the top of the xylem, which in some cases is the petals. And if you look very closely on these chrysanthemums, you can actually see where there's a greater density of xylem, and you see little veins in the backs of some of the leaves. That's true. There are these very pretty, very straight pink lines that almost look like they've been neatly drawn onto the back of these petals. Now, unfortunately, Dave, these flowers aren't looking very healthy. 
Yeah, I'm not convinced that all inks and all food colourings are particularly good for flowers, so it might limit the lifetime of your plants, I'm afraid. <laughs> but at least they'll be a bit more colourful for a little while. So there you go, that's how to turn your white flowers red or blue or green or purple, whatever colour food colouring you have. If you'd like to send us any photos of your colourful flowers, then send them by email to chris at thenakedscientist.com and we'll be back with more Kitchen Science next week. Dave's put a time-lapse video of what's going on in that kitchen science on the website at www.thenakedscientist.com but there's nothing like actually trying it out for yourself and it also reminds me of a story I heard from my sister from Oxford University and apparently when they do their exams at the beginning they take in with them a white carnation halfway through they take um, a pink one and at the end when they're doing their final exams they take a red one and this stems back to time years and years ago when they had ink... um, wells in front of them in their exams and they would stick a flower in it and over the course of their exams it would come more and more dark in colour and presumably black or blue or something but it's supposed to be... But, but red's from... viewed as more attractive. But now, they wouldn't well, write in red ink though, would they? They wouldn't cause... write in red ink but I don't think you can get black black flowers in different <laughs> colours so now you just you, you take a pink or a white one depending on so you know if you see someone walking around Oxford with a red carnation they've finished their exams. Lucky them. Like us here in Cambridge. Thank you, Helen. Now, this week's show is, of course, all about the science of agriculture. And if you'd like to join us, then you can write an email address, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, one of the things that farmers have to do is to combat the problem of plant pests. And at the moment, they tend to do that in one way, which is by using chemicals to treat the problem. But... One alternative could be the use of genetic techniques. In other words, we could take genes from one plant, or perhaps even a totally different species, that knows how to destroy a pathogen, give it to a plant, and that plant then has the ability to ward off that pathogen chemically, but without the farmer having to add additional chemicals. How do we do this, and why is it any better than existing techniques? Well, to to tell us, here's Professor Jonathan Jones. He's based at the Sainsbury Laboratory in Norwich. Hello, Jonathan. Hello there. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. First of all, if you would, just tell us, how do you actually make a genetically modified plant? Well, um, a plant carries 50,000 genes or so, and the idea is to put in uh, a gene or two that confers a useful new trait. Um, And to do that, you take advantage of a, a bacterium called agrobacterium, Uh, which naturally causes ghouls on a number of crops, particularly a grapevine, but uh, a number of others too. And it does this by introducing DNA into the um, cells of that plant that make the plant more conducive to the growth of the bacterium. And what scientists have done over the last um, 30 years, actually, uh, is to um, understand this process, uh, break it down into components, and then um, use their knowledge of... um, uh, the DNA that that confer that transfers the DNA. The lights just went off in my studio. Uh, sorry, um, the, the 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 mechanism that transfers the DNA into the plant cell and um, get rid of the genes that make the plant cell uh, you know, do do a number of growth characteristics that are not good for the plant cell. And then you can put in genes that confer properties that will be advantageous for the crop. And the res- and then what you do is you incubate the plant cells with the bacteria. And then you select for those plant cells that receive the genes that you're interested in. And, uh, and then at the end, you get a plant back from that that has the 50,000 genes it started with and has a couple of new genes as well. What sorts of things have scientists done in terms of actually making functional crops that will be useful? What sorts of genes have they inserted to enable crops to do novel things? The, the first thing that was done was to help um, farmers control weeds. And so 30, if in, in the absence of weed control, uh, you can lose 30 or 40% of your yield. Um, I can go into my back garden and, and do some hoeing to uh, control weeds, but uh, they're, they're, they're a constant problem, as anyone who's ever grown any pl- uh, crops or, or uh, allotment will know. And if you've got an eight, uh, 50 hectare field or whatever to control weeds, then there's no alternative really uh, to herbicides. And the problem is that many herbicides um, are damaging to watercourses, uh, they're quite persistent, um, and so uh, the herbicides that were being used a lot in the, in the 70s, there was a strong incentive to replace them with something that was less persistent. And um, the, the main one that was um, adopted worldwide was the glyphosate uh, resistance um, trait. So glyphosate is a, is a very good herbicide, but it kills all known plants, including the, the uh, crop, and so what was done was to engineer in a gene that meant that the crop survived uh, the glyphosate 
and so the weeds were better controlled. And glyphosate isn't activated quickly in the soil, so uh, it's, it's less... Uh, damaging way to control weeds than, than the methods that it replaced. Subsequent to that, then, there was um, insect control. So there are proteins uh, that are toxic to larvae of um, uh, moths and butterflies, uh, such as the boll weevil, such as uh, corn rootworm, such as um, uh, corn um, stem um, and uh, cobworm. And so you can engineer the plant to make a protein that kills the insect, and that's better than what the technology it replaced, which was applying insecticides. Can I just ask you something about the, the, the practice of making a genetically modified plant? Because yeah. when you actually put the foreign gene from one organism or one plant species into another to give it that resistance, do you know where into the, into the plant's genetic material that integration, that insertion has occurred? Or is it to all intents and purposes random? Uh, where it, it goes in any particular transformation event is is, un, is currently unpredictable, um, but you can then find out where it went uh, when you because what, what what's actually done to produce any commercial variety is to make hundreds of transformation events or even thousands, and uh, select one that has no, shall we say, collateral damage in terms of the performance of the plant, and then characterise where it went in very thoroughly. So anything that's on the market. Um, uh, it's very well defined where the gene uh, went in. There are new technologies becoming available to uh, put um, DNA in at a defined position. And uh, currently that's, that's experimental, but it looks promising. Um, but but none of, no crops resulting from that technology are yet uh, anywhere near commercialisation. Because if I might ask you very briefly, just to give us the answer to this, which is that if you've got to say a gene in a plant which is not essential for that plant to grow but it does for instance remove a toxin that might be bad for us if we ate the plant but it doesn't really harm the plant if you put your new gene into the plant and it deactivated that gene that gets rid of that toxin or it makes the plant so it's more vulnerable to something else it might grow a mold which is bad for us if we eat it how do we know that that hasn't happened and that therefore we haven't had some kind of knock-on effect to the safety of that crop well, when I said that, um, that, that there's a lot of transformers made in any such experiment which are then screened for their properties for whether there's any collateral damage, that's the kind of collateral damage uh, that people look for. So uh, you can, you, you know, you, there'll be experimental acres, uh, you know, large, large uh, um, area devoted to this uh, trialed crop uh, before it hits, um, hits the public. And, and if there, anything like that were to happen, uh, it would become clear at an early stage before it reached the market. And we'll be talking about organic farming in just a second. Why is this better than organic techniques? I mean, there's you, I, the, the, the problem with organic farming is that yields are low, uh, lower than conventional agriculture. Um, it is true that they cause uh, less collateral damage, there's less risk of nitrogen runoff into watercourses, um, there's certainly no insecticides uh, applied, uh, although they do use copper sulfate to control late blight uh, in potatoes. Um, but the main problem is yield. By 2030, we're going to need to double yield uh, because um, of a growing population and because of increasing demand uh, throughout the world for uh, more meat in the diet. And to double yield is going to be a tough ask, and I don't think it's going to happen uh, with organic agriculture. So basically we need the technology that you're coming up with. Thank you very much. Stay with us, please, Jonathan Jones from the Sainsbury Laboratory in Norwich because we have a number of questions that we'll put to you later on in the programme, including actually how we go about um, doing some of the techniques that Jonathan was describing and also whether faster-growing GM plants might actually be weaker in some way. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. Well, organic farming may not necessarily produce the yield we need to feed the world in future years, but they do. It is booming business. It's increasingly popular, and uh, they go about organic farms go about dealing with the same pests that conventional farms face, but in a different way. We sent Ben Valsler to meet Professor Jane Memmott at Bristol University to find out more. How do organic farms deal with pests? Conventional farmers use pesticides to kill them off, but organic farming relies on the natural predators present acting as biocontrol agents to kill off the pests. 
This is known as biodynamic pest control, and it's a major part of organic farming which limits or excludes both pesticides and synthetic fertilisers, with the grand aim to improve the health of soils and ecosystems. Biodynamic pest control relies on having high biodiversity. That's a wide variety of plants, insects and animals in the ecosystem. To see if biodynamic pest control really works, Professor Jane Mehmet at the University of Bristol found 40 farms to compare. That's 20 organic and 20 conventional. To get a real understanding of what's going on, Professor Mehmet's team were looking at the useful roles that organisms play, such as pollination or pest control. These are known as ecosystem services. We wanted to look at the scale of the whole farm and we also wanted to look at interactions between species because ecosystem services, all of them, are about interactions between species, whether it's between a, a caterpillar pest and its biocontrol agent, whether it's between a, a flower and, and a bee that leads to an apple or a tomato or whatever. They all involve interactions. So rather than just counting species, which is what previous studies had done, they count how many birds or how many beetles or how many spiders are on organic and conventional farms and compare the two, we want to put together food webs. In an ambitious project, Jane and Bristol University undergraduates set about mapping and sampling all 40 farms, observing all of the plants, predators, prey and pest species present. They paid particular attention to parasitoids. These are organisms which spend a portion of their life parasitising another organism. As gruesome as this may sound, parasitoids that target caterpillars are essential to pest control. So every month, a team of people would go through the farm and sample transects in each of the different habitats. And to do that, you walk through or go through on your hands and knees through the habitat and you're collecting all the caterpillars and all the leaf miners in that habitat and you're counting all the plants that are in that habitat. You then take your caterpillars back to the lab and you either get a moth or you get a parasitoid out of them. So that information can then be used to join up all of the species into food webs, who eats who, which caterpillars eat which plants and which parasitoids eat which caterpillars. And we've got one of those for each farm. The food webs predictably showed that there was slightly more biodiversity on the organic farms than on conventional farms. But food webs alone cannot tell you how effective an ecosystem is at tackling pests. So what our prediction was next was that the organic farms would provide better biological pest control. That you've got more species of parasitoid on there, you got more semi-natural habitats, so they should give you better pest control. And, in, you know, indeed, the whole ethos of organic farming is that one of the reasons they don't get as many pests is because they've got all these beneficial insects that eat all the pests. So what we did next was actually, this is my favourite bit, it's the clever bit, was that having got the networks, we then actually decided to manipulate them in some way. Now, what we wanted to do, the ideal experiment, is to take, find a pest, a new pest, and put it on all farms and see if they're better controlled on the organic farms. But you can straightway see that that's not going to work. You know, it's ethically, morally, suspect. you just can't do it. The farmers would never let you back again. So you can't do that. So what we did instead was we had a surrogate pest. We found something that was pest-like but would not appear on the farms naturally. Um, and we could use as kind of a, a surrogate pest to ask what would happen if a new species of insect came in. And the particular insect we used was a thing called the pyracantha leaf miner. As its name suggests, the pyracantha leaf miner is a pest that lives inside the leaves of the pyracantha plant, a hardy, prickly plant that wouldn't normally be found on a farm. By planting 40 pyracantha bushes on each farm and introducing these leaf miners, they can act as a surrogate pest to show the level of natural pest control. And what we found really surprised us because we found that for this particular species, the pest control was no better on the organic farms than on the conventional farms. So there was no difference whatsoever in the number of them killed. So this kind of made us scratch our heads a bit. And what we did then was, because we've got these networks for each one, we went back to our networks and asked, well, how many parasites are there that would probably attack this species? And actually it turns out that when you retrospectively predict what could attack it, there really aren't more species of parasitoid on organic farms than conventional farms. Using the same data, they were able to predict that just three of more than 30 families of insects would be better controlled on the organic farms. Professor Memot now plans to introduce surrogate pests from each of these families and see if biodynamic pest control really does work. So what does this mean for organic farming? The conventional farms all have lots of semi-natural habitat on them, so they are, they're kind of getting this pest control for free and they don't necessarily realise that, that it's there. So it's not just having more biodiversity, it's actually having the right sort of biodiversity that's really important. 
Conventional farmers can actually get an awful lot of the biodiversity gains of organic farms without going wholesale organic. We're never going to have more than 5-10% of farms organic in the UK, I don't think, ever. So that 90% of other farms, if they can make small changes in what they do, that could actually have a, a really big effect on biodiversity nationwide. And if they can take some of the things that really work from the organic farms, which don't involve whole-scale conversion to organicness, then that could reap huge biodiversity gains across the country. So adopting certain aspects of organic farms, for example growing healthy hedgerows and areas of semi-natural habitat, or reducing reliance on pesticides, could see conventional farms bursting with biodiversity and naturally protected from pests. Little changes from the great majority of conventional farmers, rather than having another 2% of organic farms, say, could make the most enormous difference. So you don't need to be totally organic, just a bit organic will do. That was Professor Jay Mehmet, she's at the University of Bristol, and she was talking to our own Ben Valsler. Well, it doesn't matter how you grow your crops, whether they're organic, it doesn't matter how you go about trying to deal with pests, there's one thing that crops will always need, and that is water. Well, we're now joined by Charlie Payton, and he's the managing director of a company called Seawater Greenhouse. Now, the name might be a bit of a giveaway, but we're going to find out from him all about what he's been up to. Hi, Charlie, thanks for joining us. Yes, hello. First of all, could you describe for us what these seawater greenhouses are, and what's the problem you're hoping to solve with them? Why do we need them. Okay, yeah. They're they're greenhouses. Most people think of greenhouses as hothouses. Well, these are cool houses because we cool them with seawater. So they're designed for hot, arid climates like North Africa and the Middle East and Australia. And we cool them by using seawater, which we pour over a um, a kind of construction, which is a honeycomb cardboard material, um, which is a cross between a honeycomb and, if you like, a sponge. So we have a very large surface area of wall that is wetted with seawater. Now, when the air comes through that, it's cooled and the humidity goes up. So by cooling the air and raising the humidity, we create conditions that plants will grow in uh, when they wouldn't otherwise. So you want to grow plants in the middle of the desert where really they just wouldn't grow normally because it's too hot, too dry, there's not enough water. Exactly. So you're cooling things down and you're creating water as well. And we're creating water as well because at the back end of the greenhouse we have another arrangement with a similar um, evaporator but this time we put hot water, uh, hot seawater over the, the back evaporator before the air goes out of the greenhouse and then it passes through a small heat exchanger which is cooled by the water that we cooled on the front wall. So it's rather like, if you like having a hot shower and seeing water condense on the bathroom mirror. Right. Now, do these things have to be built near the sea? And then also, what do you do with the salt once you've got rid of it when you've produced this fresh water? Presumably you have a very strong brine left over at the end. What do you do with that? Uh, At the moment, we put the the salt back into the seawater, but our intention is in the future to uh, separate out the various minerals and indeed use a lot of them for for the plants themselves. So you can use that as well to help grow the plants. Um, so you can put the, the plants do need those salts, but in different quantities, in different amounts. Well, exactly. If you can, in simple terms, if you can take the salt, that is the sodium chloride out of seawater, you've got a very good um, baby biotype mixture, which is which has got all the trace elements and a lot of the nutrients that the plants need. And in fact, seaweed and, and fish meal are perhaps the best fertilizers you can get. Now, does this need any electricity? Because I believe one of the big problems with using desalination plants is they're really energy hungry. You have to use a lot of energy to create that fresh water. Are you using any electricity at all in your greenhouses? Yes, we are. We're using it's a very small amount of electricity um, and it's extremely efficient. We use, um, typically, if I can put this bit in perspective, we, we need power for the pumps and for the fans which regulate the airflow. And typically we use um, around two kilowatts of electricity to remove about a megawatt of heat. So that's good, is it? <laughs> it's, it's, it's very efficient. Uh, excellent. And, and in terms of the efficiency of what you're growing, um, say how big would you need, how big a greenhouse would you need to feed a, a family or maybe a, a village, if you like? Oh, there's no limit. I mean, uh, greenhouses are made in a modular sort of way and um, there's no limit to the scale. I mean, at the moment in, 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 in Europe, we get a lot of our fresh produce from greenhouses and there's, in the south of Spain, for example, there's 40,000 hectares of greenhouses primarily producing out-of-season crops for us in Europe in the winter months. 
So would this work in countries like Britain, or are you really aiming this at, at those very dry, arid countries? No, it's, it's aimed at places like North Africa, the Middle East, Australia, India, and those sort of places. I believe you've got a project, um, is that right, called the Sahara Forest Project. What's that about? That's right. We've sort of taken it one step further, um, and I, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with concentrated solar power, but it's a, it's a process um, that's getting more and more interesting, and people are getting um, more excited about, where you, you very simply have an array of mirrors in a hot sunny place and the mirrors are focused onto something that heats up water and you turn that water to steam and you use that steam to drive a steam turbine and there are various different versions of them but several have been built and there are quite a lot being planned and there are some fairly grand schemes for um, for Europe to actually source its electricity from the Sahara through these through these systems. Now our thinking is that um, as with any thermal process that makes electricity, there's a lot of heat to be got rid of. And that if we have the seawater greenhouses in the vicinity of these power plants, we can take that waste, low-grade heat, and use it to evaporate and condense a lot more water. Thanks, Charlie. That was Charlie Payton. He's the managing director of Seawater Greenhouse, and they're developing an elegant system to grow crops and supply fresh water in arid areas. Distilling the best science... The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Helen Scales. We're talking about farming and agriculture of the future. Lots of questions for our two guests, Jonathan, uh, jo- Jonathan Jones and also Charlie Payton, who are with us this week. And uh, let's kick off. Uh, Callum in Sudbury asks you, Jonathan, um, why he doesn't understand why the demand for meat is going to increase into the future, as you suggested, and, so, and you made the, the case for needing GM as a consequence. Why should we see that increase in meat demand? Well, <clears throat> many would say quite reasonably that we, sh- we shouldn't, but the fact is that we will. It's clear that China's appetite for uh, meat in the diet in particular is, is going up and up. Uh, these are people who, uh, from having rice seven days a week, will want to have um, rice plus meat you know, one day out of seven and uh, maybe even two days out of seven. And so the, the, it's, it's, as affluence goes up, uh, demand for meat, will go up. And I think it's unfortunate because uh, we could reduce our impact on the environment if we ate less meat, especially in the, in the, in the West. But anyway, I think that's what's going to happen. And a major trade um, pipeline is soybeans from Brazil to China to uh, grow pigs. Charlie, have you got any thoughts on that? It, it must be in everybody's interest to eat less meat, and therefore it must be in everybody's interest to have greater biodiversity of fresh produce. And that's one of the things we're very interested in, in encouraging Charlie, Timothy Hyde has emailed us and said, uh, with the water crisis that we've got in bits of Africa, with all these areas having um, some sort of uh, energy plant, um, why not use the steam that could come off of systems like that to produce turbines? Why why not actually replace the fresh water with salt water and the excess vapour could then be collected and sold in in the way that you're doing it? Well, that's essentially what we're talking about, yes. Exactly, that's the same thing. Excellent. So it's already being done. Fantastic. We heard from Paul Anderson, and uh, he's got a question for Jonathan, which is, if we grow fast-growing GM plants, are they actually weaker than the non-GM varieties? Well, usually they don't grow a lot faster. They're just um, more disease-resistant, so you have less losses. So if your roots aren't eaten uh, by corn rootworm, for example, they're actually stronger because they can take in more water. The the roots um, are not... Uh, removed from the equation, so the the water harvesting from the soil, but for the plant, is is more efficient. Can I just say, Charlie? Hi, Charlie. Yes, uh, er- everyone should check out his uh, website, seawatergreenhouse.com. It's very cool what he's doing. I think. Wow, Charlie, you couldn't ask for more of endorsement than <laughs> yes. that, could you? Very good, thank you. I've got a question for, for you, Jonathan, here yeah. from Kirsten, who says, could I inject the DNA from one plant into another to make a new fruit? Sounds exciting. All kinds of cocktails <laughs> spring to mind. Um, the, the thing that distinguishes... What distinguishes one fruit from another involves more than one gene. It's, it's, it's pretty complicated. I mean, you could... So that if you wanted to convert white grapes to red grapes, then the gene that distinguishes them is defined. You could put that gene in and get a red grape back, but you couldn't change species uh, with one gene. And could I just ask you, Charlie, when are we going to actually see um, your greenhouses in production? I mean, how, how far down the production line are you with this technology? Well, we've built three, and we've got three demonstrators working um, in different parts of the world, and we are planning a fairly large-scale commercial operation in Australia, which will happen sometime, I hope, later next year. And we're working quite intensively on the Sahara forest idea. We don't know where we're going to start, but we're putting the numbers together. 
And is it going to be affordable for people in areas where food production is a problem because they don't have enough money for things like fertilisers and so on? Well, it's a method of um, creating wealth in a sense because um, if you have no water, you cannot do anything. If you have water, you can create jobs, you can create food, you can create energy. Thank you very much. We've got a question here for you, Chris, from Shakira, and she wants to know why does it smell so nice after it rains? And she says that from her wonderful island in Jamaica, it does sound gorgeous, wish I lived there, um, she says it does smell really lovely after it rains and wonders, is it perhaps that the air is cleaner? Does the rain wash pollutants out of the air perhaps? The answer to this was quite slow coming and no one really knew for sure. Perhaps we still don't know for certain, but there was certainly some work done on this in the 1960s and a paper got published in 1966 where scientists actually, they think, got the answer. The theories were that this could either be something coming out of the soil, something reacting with water in the soil to produce a smell, or perhaps something organic, something living. And it turns out it's probably the latter. Um, a group of scientists analysed the air, and they found that when you look at soil, you find a very common soil bacterium called Actinomycetes. This is a filamentous bacterium. It grows in lots of little filaments that ramify through the soil, picking up nutrients. But it also has another form which it uses to protect itself when the soil is very, very dry. So when there's severe, arid, dry conditions, it recedes into a spore. And this is a dormant form of the bacterium from which it can reactivate when water comes back and the soil is fresh and there's lots of good environments for it to exploit again. So what scientists think happens when you get a rain shower and it produces that beautiful earthy smell in the air is that the rain comes down, it hits dry soil where all these bacteria have formed these little spores. The spores then get ejected up into the air and they drift around in a cloud because they're so tiny they stay drifting around in the cloud for quite some time. You then breathe them in and they smell the way they smell. That's their smell. But it's also a form of sort of dispersal for the bacterium because it, it then descends on another patch of ground out of the air and can germinate and grow. So I suppose that's one point. Another thing to bear in mind is, of course, there's the other possibility that was also raised by scientists historically, and that is that there are various chemical reactions that can occur when water hits a soil or a dry soil or a rock. And so it might be that some of these smells are because of particular rocks getting wetted and then chemical reactions being, being uh, elaborated and then they produce various chemicals that go up into the air. But we think it's mainly the, the actinomycetes that's the main cause. Excellent. Well, I certainly love that smell after it rains. No, I don't think you can beat that smell. It's one of those all-defining smells that we all know immediately. You can just sense it and you can just close your eyes and you can almost smell it, can't you? Right, we're talking of questions. Time now to introduce Diana O'Carroll with this week's question of the week. And it is a watery theme, Diana. Hello. Well, this week it's time to ask, is it all getting lost in the wash? Hello, I'm Russell from Great Chisel and I would like to know why do washing powders remove stains but not dyes? So, to get to the gritty nitty, how do washing powders work? My name is Wamia Damosu and I work as a scientist looking into improving our laundry detergents at Purcell. To answer the first part, one of the main and important ingredients used is surfactants. Um, the surfactant molecule is clever in the way that on one side it has a hydrophobic, that's water-hating molecule chain, and on the other side it has a hydrophilic, water-loving component. The hydrophobic chain finds itself sticking to the stains on your clothes, and the hydrophilic head has a strong attraction to water. They're able to surround the dirt and roll it up into a small globular-type ball, and the end result is that they're able to lift the stain from your cloth into the wash water. We also, to help in the cleaning, some of our detergents contain enzymes, which are naturally derived molecules. Generally, we use different enzymes such as proteases, which break down proteins, and amylase, which breaks down starch. And then finally, another major ingredient that we use, like most other detergent manufacturers, is bleach. The bleach turns the stain into more soluble, colourless particles that can be easily removed and carried away into the wash water. So in actual fact, it can remove bleachable dye stains. So to kind of answer the other part of the question, laundry detergents can remove certain dyes as well as stains. 
Well, most dyes are composed of molecules that these ingredients can't target. Surfactants can't globularise the dyes, nor can enzymes gobble them up, unless they're vegetable-based. But bleach can affect dyes, and this is why washing powders designed for coloured clothes don't contain any bleach. So, Dinah, what is your worst washing disaster? <laughs> um, I, d- I don't think I've ever done the kind of you know red sock in with a, a white item I of have. clothing. <laughs> Helen, have you had a I'm always washing leaving, disaster? I'm always leaving tissues in pockets, and then you get little bits of white. I know it's not quite the same, but little bits of white fluff. All over my husband's nice black T-shirts, he gets very cross. I bet he does. Actually, I did put a £5 note in once, but miraculously it came out OK. Excellent. Quite so you were money laundering? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> right, once I've got over that, um, you may have seen adverts to wash your clothes at 30 and save energy, but how much energy could a new car save? Hi, this is Steve from Crowborough. My question is... With the budget introducing the £2,000 subsidy to scrap old cars, I'm trying to figure out how much energy and carbon goes into the manufacture of a new car. Considering the increase in efficiency of the new car, how many miles would I have to drive to achieve an overall carbon saving? So, can you help us solve our next question of the week? If you have an answer and you'd like to be included in next week's episode, then please email us. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can write the answer into question of the week and that's a section in our forum which you can find at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. That was Diana O'Carroll with this week's Question of the Week. She'll be back on that car theme, as she said, next week. You can also catch Question of the Week as its own podcast, nakedscientist.com forward slash QOTW. And on the subject of cars, that's exactly what we're talking about next week. The vehicles of the future will be finding out about better batteries that could carry electric cars much further and also how hydrogen could be the fuel of the future and why algae could be the new diesel. Thank you very much to Charlie Payton, Jane Memmott and Jonathan Jones and our wonderful production team here at The Naked Scientists. See you all next week. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.